Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis, the end of Genesis 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 31. And uh, before we get into our text, let's just pray. Father, we come before you as a needy people. We, we need you. We are thankful for grace, superabundant grace, grace upon grace, all-sufficient grace, saving grace, sanctifying grace. Father, you have given us, as Peter reminds us, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And these things come to us, as Jim alluded to, by your precious and magnificent promises. Father, we come before you thinking of just many things, but particularly in our body, we have people who are are suffering, Father, people who um, outer their outer man is decaying. And um, uh, the effects of sin and the curse on this world and on humanity causes us to suffer things. Father, we could go on and on talking about our physical ailments and on top of that, and more importantly, our all our spiritual ailments, um, our lack of faith in you, our pride, our lust, our fear, our anxiety. Father, many things that uh, when we look at, we, we know that they are wrong and we know that we do not have the power within ourselves to change ourselves. And so we come before you begging, pleading that you would alter our lives, that we might be able to stand before you as holy and blameless. We are thankful we can do that in the blood of Christ, but we also want to do that in practice until we go to be with you in glory. So help us, Father, to grow and help us to seek your face and, Father, to find victory over sin as we look to you and look to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in the church today, and when I use church, I don't use it as the universal church of all believers, but the the church in the world comprised of many professing people, many who never come to even worship anywhere. Uh, there is a great trend away from believing in the biblical account of creation. They are pressured by scientists who who pretty much today are considered to be infallible. People don't even realize that scientists are constantly changing their views of what they say is true, but they trust them implicitly rather than God. Then uh, in addition to that, there is the evolution propaganda machine, which keeps telling us millions and billions of years and that we've evolved out of slime and all of these sorts of things. And, and so because of this, many who profess to be Christians have abandoned the creation account and uh, the literalness of God speaking the world and all it contains, the universe and all it contains into existence in six days. They particularly deny the reality of Adam and Eve having put on their kind of evolutionary spectacles. That's all they see when they look at the Bible. They look at the Bible and say, well, we know evolution is true. Scientists would never lie to us. They, they're infallible. Therefore, we must adjust the text and somehow fit it in. And therefore, Adam and Eve could not be true. Um, uh, they still call themselves Christians, though, and they call themselves Bible-leavers, and, and uh, they actually are quite amazed in view of what scientists and evolutionists say is true, that many Christians actually are still naive enough to actually believe the Bible. 
uh, when we know the Bible couldn't be true. And they're really amazed that people actually believe Adam and Eve were people who actually lived in a garden called Eden. Well, NPR News, August 9th, 2012, gives one such, or 2011 gives one such example. You can't have August 9th and... I was thinking, man, that's bad. Um, Comments about this saying, quote, John Schneider, who taught theology at Calvin College in Michigan until recently, uh, says it's time to face the facts. There was no historical Adam and Eve, no serpent, no apple, no fall that toppled man from his state of innocence. Evolution makes it pretty clear that in nature and in the moral experience of human beings, there never was any such paradise to be lost. Schneider says, so Christians... I think, have a challenge, have a job on their hands to reformulate some of their tradition about human beings, end quote. This is a professor at a, quote, Christian college. Uh, Be careful before you send your kid to a Christian college. They may not be Christian at all. Uh, In that same article, Carl Giberson, who has labored to be a peacemaker between uh, evolutionists and and Christianity, is uh, quoted as saying, uh, quote, when you ignore science, you end up with egg on your face. The Catholic Church has had an awful lot of egg on its face for centuries because of Galileo. And Protestants would do very well to look at that and to learn from it, end quote. Dan Harlow, a professor at Calvin College, who is not far behind Schneider and his liberal views, says, quote, this stuff is unavoidable. Evangelicals have to either face up to it or they have to stick their head in the sand. And if they do that, they will lose whatever intellectual currency or respectability they have, end quote. And I would add respectability among those who hate God. Um, Albert Muller in Southern Seminary is quoted in that same article responding to all of these men. Uh, If so, that's simply the price we have to pay. The moment you say we have to abandon this theology in order to have the respect of the world, you end up with neither biblical orthodoxy nor the respect of the world, end quote. Well, praise God for Albert Muller, one of the few sane voices out there who actually believe that what the Bible says, you know, imagine that, um, the world having lost respect for God as being all knowing, all powerful, all wise and holy, having rejected the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of the word of God can really be led by the nose to believe anything, anything. Fact is, God is the only perfect being. He's the only one who knows everything. He was the only one who was there. And he wrote down for us in plain, simple prose, not poetry and not allegory, that Adam and Eve existed as the first man and woman created during the first, the last day of creation, during the creation week. In the New Testament, Adam is mentioned as literal a literal person nine times. Eve is mentioned as a literal person twice. Satan as a serpent who is in the garden that tempted Eve uh, is mentioned five times. Jim even alluded to one just as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, Paul says. Uh, Jesus and the apostles believed in Adam and Eve were literal people. Uh, What is really at stake here, as in with pretty much all aberrant views and philosophies and theories, is a denial of the Bible. You deny the Bible, then you have a free-for-all, a a free-for-all. You can believe anything you want. The Bible stands in the face of all of the false doctrines and aberrant thoughts that men generate. 
And that's why they're constantly attacking the Bible, because if they can get rid of the Bible, then they can do whatever they want. Here's the constant cry. You can't just believe the Bible. The Bible contains so many errors. We know that. The Bible isn't to be taken literally. The Bible is outdated. The Bible doesn't speak to modern people. The Bible isn't inspired and on and on it goes. And once people disbelieve the Bible, they believe anything. Jesus and the authors of scriptures become liars if the Bible isn't true. Salvation is rendered impossible because Jesus is a liar and not perfect and therefore cannot be the perfect substitute for man. Man becomes God and religion becomes a myth that weak-minded souls who need a mental crutch to lean on, lean on. And you know, they're, they're fine if we lean on our religious crutch of Christianity as long as we don't interfere with them sinning. As long as we don't make them fearful of hell and judgment and oppress them with biblical morality. But tell them the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that God really exists and he's going to judge sinners, that they are created by God and therefore must submit to God. They scoff and ridicule and deny it. And this morning, uh, we are going to look at a text that is to severely attack this whole idea of God creating the heavens and earth and all they contain, but specifically man and the purpose for man in Genesis 1. Uh, last time we looked at the beginning of the first day, uh, or the sixth day of creation, when God created all the animals, and now he is going to create man. Man is unique, distinct, different. He's not an animal. He is a creature created in God's own image. He has special value, special purpose, and contains attributes that mirror the attributes of God. So look in your Bibles at Genesis 1 and follow along as I read verses 28 through 31. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given every green plant for food and it was so and god saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and there and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day now from our text we will see one more purpose uh, that God has for man. We will see a blessing that God has given man, and then we'll see God's self-evaluation of his creation. These things are shown to us so we know more about who we are and what we are to do in relationship uh, just as people, uh, how we are to worship God and why we should praise God. The first thing we read in the text is God created man to populate the earth. There are five commands in verse 28. I mean, they are stuffed in the passage, five imperatives. And uh, we've already looked at the first two because they're repeated in verse 26. Uh, the whole idea of ruling, uh, the two instructions, subdue the earth and rule the earth. We've looked at them last week. Uh, we remember they're, they're both just kind of synonyms. And t- together they basically mean this, uh, learn about creation Figure it all out as best you can. And of course, that takes forever since it's so complex and wonderful. And as you're figuring it out, uh, bring it into subjection to yourself. Be wise stewards of it and use it for your own purposes and give me glory because of it. 
So that's really uh, what that's what what that means to subdue and rule. Adam and Eve were created to be king and queen of the world. But we also learned that when they decided not to submit to God and they rejected God's command and then they submitted to Satan, they were dethroned. That is why the Bible describes Satan as the God of this world. And we gave the example of when uh, Satan takes Jesus up on the mountain during the temptation. And he says, all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me and I will give them to you. The question is, well, where did he get them? From Adam and Eve, who made Satan Lord. But before the fall... Adam and Eve were the king and queen of the world. This is where C.S. Lewis, of course, got his idea of uh, from the Narnia series. Because uh, when the kids go back into Narnia, they become the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and become what? Kings and queens. There it is. Uh, so C.S. Lewis stole a bunch of good ideas. Of course, he has the animals talking even. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But part of God's plan of salvation is to restore believers to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom and on into eternity forever and ever. So the plan of redemption is the plan to bring men back to the pre-fall state where they are kings and queens with Christ to rule and reign forever and ever over a new heaven and a new earth which will be created in the future. But there are three more imperatives or commands to consider that we did not look at in verse 28. If you look towards the beginning of verse 28, then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So be fruitful, yeah, be multiplying and be filling the earth. Uh, you could say them that way uh, are the threefold directive that God gives. And we might paraphrase these three commands as have a lot of babies, increase in numbers greatly, and spread out all over the earth. That's kind of what's being said here. And notice uh, God before he spoke about the fish. He spoke about the birds. He spoke about the animals. But here God says to them. Why? Because Adam and Eve are intelligent beings created in the image of God. And they can have a personal relationship with their creator. And so God dress, addresses them specifically. Not only that, but there's something else implied here in being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth. Marriage. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because we know from chapter 2, which describes the sixth day of creation in more detail, that God made them have children in the context of marriage. So marriage is alluded to here as they were to bear children in the context of marriage. Mankind has been really very successful at populating the earth, uh, not because they wanted to obey this directive and not because they wanted to give God glory, but because uh, children are the natural consequence of certain pleasures that mankind is obsessed with. And that is why there are so many people in the world. Yet the mandate is clear that Adam and Eve were to have lots of babies uh, to populate the earth. Now, some have taken this command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth as really what Christians all must, Christians must do. That when you get married, you basically have as many babies as you can until the plumbing breaks down. I mean, you know, you just go as many, you get as many of them out there because that's what God says. Of course, others argue that, you know, there's population is increasing and, and we're in danger of overpopulation. I just want you to know we're never in danger of overpopulation. 
Because Jesus isn't going to let the world overpopulate. He's going to come back in glory. So maybe we should try and overpopulate. I don't know. Um, But the point is, is that God is just merely saying, children are a blessing. You need to have babies because we need to populate the earth. God has a plan of redemption. He knows he's going to enact. And this is part of it. It doesn't mean children are the highest good, but there is no doubt they are a good and a great blessing from the Lord. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, not clanking around with one or two arrows. So have babies in the context of marriage. Uh, You may think, you know, well, haven't we kind of done this? Haven't we kind of like fill the earth i mean aren't there like seven billion people or something like that that's a lot of people and you know what if you lived in some places you know like if you were in a traffic jam on a sunday afternoon you might think there's way too many people um in this world if you live in a big city it's very busy and there's lots of people and they're all crushed and yeah you might think oh man we're just way way overpopulated but if you go in the middle of the gobi desert You know, where it gets 40 degrees below zero at nighttime in the winter and 122 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer during the day, you're not going to see a lot of people. And you might think, you know, we haven't quite fulfilled that command. There's no doubt that some places in the world are more pleasant to live than others, uh, but there's plenty of space to have more people. The problem is, is when more people accumulate, they tend to gravitate towards cities. Uh, little Towers of Babel, uh, which we'll discuss here in a bit. But because Satan is anti-God and anti-good, he is against the family. He is against parents training their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He is uh, against one man and one woman being married for life. He is against sexual purity. He is against, um, you know, uh, being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth and that he wants people to kill their own babies. He wants people to to uh, to abort them, uh, to not have them, to let the TV raise them, to refuse to discipline them. Um, he is out to destroy every family and every relationship and everything that God says is good. He wants to make a misery and he's doing a really good job. In some of the larger cities, 70% of the babies being born are being born by unwed women. A lot of times the father is not even known, not even present. He's totally absent. And these women then are left to raise children as a consequence of immorality uh, on their own, which means they usually put them into daycare and let let the TV and video games raise them. and, And it's just increasing the problems we have in the world. Since 1978, China has implemented its family planning policy, which is somewhat of an oxymoron saying that you can only have one kid. Well, of course, if you want your family to line to progress and you can only have one child, then you get the ultrasound. And if it's a girl, you abort the girl and you keep doing that until you get yourself a boy. And so there has been female infanticide by just the millions, the untold millions because of that. In most places of the world, though, like the United States and Europe and Russia, people just get abortions for mere convenience sake. I don't want to have a baby. I don't want to get stretch marks. I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to have to, like, interrupt my career. I don't want to get morning sickness. I don't want that financial burden. I want to buy more stuff. And if I have a child, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money to raise that child, and I'd rather buy things. 
And all of this, of course, is Satan's plan to oppose God's plan, harm humanity, and lead people to hell and make people's lives miserable. So we see in verse 28, a five-fold instruction manual for mankind. This isn't everything God says, but it's the beginning of what he says. One, subdue, which means learn about creation, conquer, manage, and have dominion over it. Rule, which basically means the same thing, to bring in subjection as a wise steward. Three, be fruitful, which means to bear lots of children. Four, multiply, which means increase in numbers. And five, fill the earth, which means spread out all over the place. Now, as just a side note, one of the interesting things is with the Tower of Babel, uh, the reason the Tower of Babel was what it was is men didn't want to obey this. Turn over to... Turn over to, well, first turn over to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. I just want to show you here. This is after the flood. Noah gets out. He offers sacrifice. Um, And notice what God says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gives them the same exact command he gave Adam and Eve. Now that they've been reduced down to eight. But go over to uh, Genesis chapter 11, where we learn about the Tower of Babel. And I want you to notice what Genesis 11, 4 and the people at Babel say. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of of the whole earth. Notice their intention and goal is to specifically defy God and not spread out. Let's gather in one place. Let's get all our technology together. Let's make sure that we become our own gods. Let's not spread out because it'll weaken us. Let's stay in one place and build this tower up to heaven. And then God, because they were disobeying him, confused their language so that they would spread out over the face of the whole earth. If you look at verse 7 of Genesis 11, you see this, uh, where it says, Come, let us go down. God is speaking to himself here. Uh, Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused their language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Notice it says twice, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Man, God knows how to play hardball. God says, listen, I want you to multiply. I want you to sprout all over the place. He says, no, we're not going to do it. He says, okay, I'm going to confuse your language. So then I come up to you and I don't know that. You know, it's like, man, but some people you can understand. It's like, let's get away from those babblers and go our own way. So God spread them out. They wouldn't do it. So he spread them out himself. We know from Job 42 too, uh, where Job has learned, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, we need to remember that when God wants to make something happen, you cannot stop him. That was Paul's, or uh, um, um, what was his name? Paul's mentor in Acts, the rabbi, Gamaliel. That's what Gamaliel said, um, right? When they were persecuting the church, let's not, let's leave him alone. Let him, why? Because it's of God, you will what? Not be able to stop it. Okay? He can't be thwarted. God's plans cannot be thwarted, which is a comfort. But anyways, that's where uh, they kind of defied that command. 
Well, secondly, God gave man every plant for food. Now, this is kind of fun. Look at verse 29, especially now that it's right before lunch. It was bad for the first servants. It's going to be worse for you. Uh, then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be for food for you. And so here God is speaking to Adam and Eve. And keep in mind, Genesis 1 is a very condensed, very condensed summary of all the days of creation. Chapter 2 is nothing more than God expanding on the creation of man only. It's just an expansion since man is the focal point of his creation he takes a whole chapter to, chapter to describe what happened when man was created. Uh, later in chapter 2, we see the details. And skeptics have, of course, loved to point out that there's two creation accounts. Multiple people have come to me and said, yeah, I talked to somebody and said there was two creation accounts. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and I did read it, and it, they do kind of seem different. Well, no, uh, there's only one creation account. There is the summary and then there's chapter 2, where the last half of the sixth day is described in more detail, because that's when God created man. That's all that's going on. But what has happened is, is certain things came into play, and you're going to find this very interesting by the time we get done with this. Um, why people are have promoted two creation accounts? Well, it started with a man named... Charles Darwin, actually more before him, but he made it popular. And Darwin said that uh, there was, uh, you know, the biblical creation wasn't true, that uh, animals came from other animals and slowly mutated to what they came. And so he put forth the theory of evolution against the scriptures. And that, the theory of evolution was so cool because it's such a nebulous, jello theory, and you can't prove it to be true and you can't prove it to be wrong because it takes supposedly so long that no one can wait around to see if it's true and no one can wait around to see if it's false. And therefore they just assume and assert it's true. And of course, no one can conquer it because it is made on a foundation of guesswork and jello. Um, so Darwin puts forth this theory of evolution. Later on, a man named Herman Gunkel comes along and he rejects biblical authority. And he kind of takes this whole idea of evolution and he applies it to the religion of the Bible. He says, look at all these other religions in the world and look how they all believe in a God and look how they, you know, for instance, believe in a creation account or a flood account. And, and what we're seeing here is just the the evolution as man evolved so religion evolved so we know the bible isn't true it's just man's thoughts about what must have happened because he was too ignorant as a caveman to figure out that you know what that he, he crawled out of the slime he came from a monkey or whatever so we have Herman Gunkel who, who attacked the Bible with his uh, um, you know, view of the evolution of religion and the similarities. Of course, he never stopped to think that maybe there's similarities because they're all derived from the truth. Maybe a whole bunch of religions have a flood account because there was a flood. You know, uh, and never dawned on him. Uh, then the man Julius Wellhausen came along, and Wellhausen attacked the biblical authority by proposing that the Old Testament evolved over time. That there were these different these different authors, and there was a redactor who took what these different authors did. And the authors, you can tell who they are because each of them liked a certain name of God. For instance, in Genesis one, the word for God that's used is Elohim. It's the only word used. But in chapter two, it talked about the Lord God, and because Lord is there aha we know that a different person wrote two than what wrote one well maybe there's just a different emphasis maybe chapter one is saying god 
created the heavens and the earth. And chapter 2 is emphasizing man, whom God is Lord over. And so maybe that's the reason. See, these are the kind of things that have led to people saying there are two different creation accounts. Uh, theories like these are just the lies of Satan. They're spawned uh, by deluded men in an attempt to destroy people's trust and confidence in the Bible. But all of them flow from this thought of evolution, progression. Today, people latch on to these anti-God, anti-Bible theories, and they don't even know why. All they know is this, is if some radical, you know, fanatic Christian comes and wants to talk to me about Jesus, all I need to do is say, well, there's two creation accounts, and, you know, that's like the natives in Africa. Are there so many translations and transliterations? Are there so many religions in the world? How do you know which one's true? You know, it's a number one of those little smoke screens they throw out there to get away from me. And, of course, most Christians, when they say, well, there's two creation accounts, they kind of get this look on their face like, there are? And then they don't know how to answer the question. And then they kind of go away with their tail between their legs. Well, I'm going to tell you how to answer it. Be assured first, there is only one creation account. The one creation account is summarized in Genesis 1. The details of the sixth day are mentioned in Genesis 2. But there is another reason that's especially today that two creation accounts is very popular. And it's not because of Darwin and it's not because of Gunkel and it's not because of Wellhausen. It's because of, and you're not going to expect this one. vampires (laughs) vampires you're thinking what vampires 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 trace their origin back to our text so the people who believe in vampires say they come from our text you're thinking where well i don't see them in there well that's the whole point they're in the white spaces obviously um they say that in genesis 1 god created Adam and his first wife, Lilith. Lilith uh, is not mentioned by name because she was a bad wife. Lilith was the first feminist who refused to submit to Adam and fled from the garden. Yet before she divorced Adam, they had children together who are the demons of the Bible. Lilith therefore became queen of the demons. In Genesis 2, God sought to remedy the situation and made another wife for Adam who was more submissive to Adam and called, Adam called her Eve. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, Lilith and Adam supposedly had another fling, but eventually Adam was reconciled to Eve for good. However, I think Lilith was a little bit jealous, and so she set about to murder the children of Adam and Eve, and some of them she turned into vampires. This is another reason why there is a popularity of two creation accounts. Vampires. Okay, back to the truth. Verse 29. (laughs) And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. In other words, Adam and Eve were vegetarians to begin with. At this point, God surrounded Adam and Eve with an abundance of edible and nutritious plants and said, feel free to eat them. Now, I don't know if you've, you know, done this or not, but it's kind of fun. But if you've ever been out like in just the wild and the forest or whatever, and you're walking along and there's like some perfectly fresh, you know, raspberries or blackberries or maybe alpine strawberries or blueberries or, you know, some like really yummy fruit. That's just out there and you just get to eat it. That's kind of cool. 
you know, you see, uh, when I was growing up, there was, there was just these weird apple trees that were just like in the middle of nowhere. You know, you're driving along the road and there would be this giant apple tree just loaded with apples in the fall. And you go over there and wipe all the dust off and it's like, oh, those are good. That's kind of fun. And, but that's how it was for Adam and Eve. They just walked around and just foraged all the time. There's plenty to eat. God made lots of things for them to eat. We talked about before that there are some 2,000 different kinds of fruit in the world. More amazing still is there are some 20,000 kinds of edible plants. And uh, it's, it's amazing. There's a lot of plants, you know, we don't eat. Um, the other night, uh, we went out with the barn fathers and they actually had taken rose petals and I don't know what they did with them, but they coated them with sugar. So they were like shiny and glistening and you could eat them and they were crunchy and yummy. Yeah. You know, I don't usually eat rose petals, but I could eat a whole bowl of those and, um, they were good. Another interesting thing is that 90% of the world's food comes from 20 Different plants. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? What do you think the first five are? Just think for a second. The top five edible plants are, number one, corn. Oh. Uh, Number two, wheat. Yeah. Number three, rice. Number four, the Irish potato. And five, you probably won't get this one, cassava. You think, what's that? Well, we don't know it very much in America except as tapioca and tapioca pudding. But uh, cassava is eaten by some 500 million people who live in tropical regions. So it's very popular there. I did look up the number one import in the United States of food, and that happens to be sugar cane. Because, you know, we got to have chocolate and sugar on everything. Um, Not a very nutritious food, but we're into it big time. But think of all the different kinds of food that we have from wheat. You you get wheat and, you know, you can put just... We have wheat germ and wheat flour and you can make bread and cookies and cakes and pastries and noodles and cereals and all those different things that come from wheat. I mean, lots of things. And rice, you know, I mean, rice is good with just rice, but there's all different kinds of rice. And then you can put other things on it. And there's rice milk and rice flour and rice noodles and rice checks. (laughs) They're great. Rice checks are great. And what about corn? Corn flakes, you know, corn bread, corn starch, corn syrup. Uh, just plain corn on the cob, you know, all ripe with butter slatted on there. And oh, yes. And think of all the edible seeds and nuts in the world. Everything from pine nuts and sesame seeds and sunflower seeds and walnuts and cashews and pecans and poppy seeds for poppy seed muffins mm, with coffee. Lots of seeds and there's lots of leafy plants. You know, there's the head lettuce and romaine lettuce and butter crunch and bib lettuce and endive and simpson and spinach and chard. And God has given us so many different kinds of foliage to eat. And think of all uh, the different kinds of cold crops, those that grow during cooler times of the year and cooler climate, a cabbage, you know. Oh, there's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm Irish, but ham hocks, cabbage and potatoes are just... I like that. Um, 
broccoli, cauliflower, kale to put in your Tuscan soup, tomatoes and cucumbers and celery and onions and garlic and olives and peppers and, oh man, sautéed mushrooms and butter. Oh man, it's so good. And all the spices in the world. Think of all the spices. You know what's neat? You know, God has enabled me to travel to different places. I've gone to different places and I mean, around here, every place is here, granted. And if you just get out of your you know, normal little eating sphere, you know, Taco Bell, McDonald's, and Burger King. Uh, but if you actually branch out and actually go to a place you've never gone to before, you'll taste things that you've never tasted before. It is so amazing to sit down and you're tasting a food and you're thinking, the only thing, the only thing I recognize is salt here. <laughs> it's just totally different and it's good. And you realize some people in some other part of the world, they eat this all the time and they come here and they've never tasted what we eat. And God made all these spices so that we could have an infinite variety of gastronomical delights. I mean, he, you can take things that by themselves are pretty bland and just kind of basic, you know, like dried beans. And man, you can make them awesome by adding stuff to them, spices and other plants and things where you just think, man, God could have just made lemons for us to eat. Think about it. Lemons, only lemons. You know, well, dinner, big old pile of lemons. Everybody gets them, just eat them right and all since that's all you got. Only lemons every day. Lemons, lemons, lemons. I mean, just think about it. There's a lot of animals in the world that only eat one kind of food. You could be one of those creatures God made that only ate one kind of food. And God has given you all these different kinds of things, this huge variety. Why? To bless you. To bless you. So you will praise him and thank him for the huge variety of foods he has given you. I'm just so thankful that, you know, when you go into the supermarket, next time you do this, just go into the supermarket, walk into the produce section and just stop and look at all the colors and shapes and beauty of all that, the, the produce. I mean, aren't you thankful there just isn't a big pile of desiccated Brussels sprouts in the middle? I mean, I like Brussels sprouts, but I've never had them desiccated. You know, they're just, uh, just think of all the variety and how you can mix all those things, even in a, in a one grocery store, even in those limited number of vegetables, how you can mix them into like an infinite number of combinations. It's amazing. It's amazing. But a misapplication or false inference made from Genesis 129 is worth mentioning here. Some people reason to themselves, well, Because God made Adam and Eve vegetarians, and then after the fall, they could eat meat. Therefore, to be godly, you need to be a vegetarian. And if you're not, you're sinning. Well, that's not true. It's okay to be a vegetarian, and and there's good reasons to be vegetarian, especially if you've ever worked at a hot dog factory. Um, But yeah, you... You could be a vegetarian and it's fine. And, you know, you'll certainly have lower cholesterol if you're a vegetarian. And, and there is no doubt that in countries where they eat more vegetables than meat, they tend to live longer. So, yeah, uh, you'll have less heart disease most likely. But there's always Lipidor, you know, to fix that. Um, so there's health reasons. But you need to remember the death rate is still holding at 100%. You're going to die whether you eat meat or not. So get ready for it. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. 
Speaking of using our Christian liberties and eating, Paul says this. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Paul is just using this as an example. He says, one person's vegetarian, another person eats everything. And he says, the person who only eats one thing, thinking, you know, it's more godly to only eat vegetables, that person is the weaker person. But he goes on to say, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God is accepted. In other words, you can do eat what you want. You know, if you want to just eat one food, eat one food. But, you know, my wife fed me so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for so many years. She just said, I'm not making you another one. Um, That was it. She just like got tired. But I still like them. You know, I could probably live forever on peanut butter and jelly. Um, We we learned that a person uh, has freedoms to eat the variety that God has made. Paul, though, warns that you need to be careful that, you know, if you have determined for yourself that I'm going to eat this or not eat that or whatever, that's fine. Go ahead and do it, and I'm not going to judge you. You don't judge me. But if you start judging people and you start saying things like, well, listen, you're not godly because you eat this and you don't abstain from this and you need to do this. This is what Paul says about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter time, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. By the means of hypocrisy of liars, the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and abdicate the abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now notice the doctrines of demons that are mentioned here in this text is one, don't do what Genesis says. Abstain from marriage. God says, get married, have children. Don't be married. Don't have children. Isn't that interesting? God says, eat anything you want. Don't eat certain foods. Doctrine of demon. He goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. But the question still remains, why did God create Adam and Eve to be vegetarians at the beginning? And why did eating meat not come until later? I mean, what's the deal with that? Well, the deal with that is this. There was no death before the fall. God wanted no death before the fall. The wages of sin is death. And since there was no sin, God did not want there to be any death either. But keep in mind that God knew the fall was going to happen. The fall did not take God by surprise. He knew it would happen. He planned for it to happen, though he did not cause it to happen. And knowing he knew Satan would rebel, he knew Satan would deceive Eve, he knew Eve would get to Adam and they would fall into sin and the curse would come upon them. God knew all of this. And so he created creatures who would eat each other in the fallen state because he knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. Also consider that it may have been only a few hours or even days before the creation, after creation, that Adam and Eve actually fell. You know, sometimes we have this thought that, you know, God created Adam and Eve and they were in the garden for years and years and years and years. And then eventually Satan came along and tempted them. I don't think so. Why? Um, Several reasons. I'm going to give you two right now, one later on. One is, is that they never had any children. 
You know, when you've got a perfect wife, you think a children might be coming forth with rather quickly. And not only that, they never ate of the tree of life, which was in the midst of the garden. And God said, you can eat of that tree. But they never ate from it, which tells me they weren't there very long. It'll give you another reason soon. So between the the fall until after the the flood, um, there was death. Uh, God was, of course, the first one to kill animals, which is interesting. Genesis 3.21 says he killed sheep, animals, lambs, goats, something like that. Uh, the word means killed them in order to clothe Adam and Eve because of the consequences of the sin. That is the first inference of blood sacrifice and not only is it the first instance of blood sacrifice it's one of the first pictures of what christ would do and that he would give himself to cover atone for the consequence of our sins between the fall until after the flood There was death and dying, but people were still vegetarians from what we can tell from the Bible. Abel, we are told, was a keeper of sheep. Sheep were surely killed for their skins to make clothing. And we know they were killed because he offered one up as a sacrifice. So they were sacrificing them and they were killing them and making clothing as God did. But there's no indication that they were being eaten. Possibly the first time they were being eaten is in Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 and following. After the the flood, Noah gets out of the ark and offers up a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And whenever you see burnt offering in the Bible, uh, think barbecue. Okay, now there were times they were to burn up everything, but other times they were just roasted as a tri-tip to the Lord, you know, a soothing aroma to God. And that the priest would actually take some of that and eat it. Then it isn't until Genesis 9 verse 3 where God says to Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. From that point on, mankind was allowed to eat anything that moved except other people created in the image of God. God gave all the animals for food, not as a curse, not as a punishment, but as a blessing. God accepts burnt offerings. Barbecues. Mankind entered the age of prime rib, filet mignon, chicken, pork, scallops, lobster, and all those yummy kinds of fish. God is good. And when combined with all the vegetables, and you have, you know, prime rib and you know, horseradish and sautéed asparagus <laughs> with garlic butter on it. Mm. I mean, lunch is coming. <laughs> lunch is coming. The Bible doesn't tell us where a certain group of foods when they were permitted. We don't know if these were permitted before or after uh, God permitted meat, but things like um, milk and honey, uh, products produced by animals, they aren't plants and they don't require you to kill an animal. So the Bible doesn't say when those kinds of things, but we've got them. We got ice cream. Think of all the different things that are made out of milk and those of you who are lactose intolerant. I'm so sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of great things made from creme brulee. 
Mmm, little hard, crunchy crust on there, nice and cold with a little vanilla on the bottom. Yeah, and so God made all of these things to just be a blessing to you, to be a blessing to me. All of these kinds of foods, which can be mixed together in an infinite number of combinations to be tasty, God made so that you could be blessed. And that is why we need to thank God for our food. Because we aren't just re-eating just, you know, white starch every day. Okay, back to the plants. Verse 30. He not only gave them to man, but it says then to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to every living thing that moves in the earth, which has life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so animals before the fall were not killing each other. Uh, they ate plants too. Ion, lions ate grass like ox. We looked at that in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, where it talks about when Jesus's kingdom returns, um, the animals become placid like before the fall and they, they don't harm anymore. There's no fear of uh, of man and man isn't fear, fearful of them and the child plays with the cobra and all those things. Um, and now if the fall did take place shortly after creation, and I believe it did, God may have had some creatures uh, uh, not eat until the fall. And uh, some have brought up, you know what, there are some creatures which are just predators. I mean, they are built to kill other things. Spiders, snakes, you know, the anglerfish. I mean, why does the anglerfish have this lure to attract other things, like to have a conversation? <laughs> well, they're going in, okay? And he's, he not, you can't, you know, lure any seaweed to his mouth. And so the whole point is there are a lot of creatures, when you study them, they have poison and fangs and, you know, they're, they're praying mantis. You know, what's the around them? Nabbing flowers or whatever. Um, and so the question is, so what about those creatures? Well, it could be that God just sustained them and it only was a short time uh, before he knew man would fall. And after that, he'd let them devour one another. So, uh, but we don't know. All we know is there was no death before the fall. And so I think it happened shortly thereafter. And not only, not only that, um, uh, we have one more thing we see in the text, which is kind of fun. Uh, not only do we have God telling men to be multiplied, not only does he give us all this food to eat, um, God said creation was very good. This is God's self-evaluation of what he created. Look at verse 31. Uh, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Uh, it was tov mioth. In the Hebrew, it means to be greatly good, to be exceedingly good, to be abundantly good. It speaks of good to the greatest deposit degree and we would expect nothing else from a God who is perfect but because it does say that God is good and his creation is good then the world has to be perfect without flaw without disease without mutation without death without aggression at this point even Satan is good and all the demons are still holy angels the animals were calm and they were meek People weren't afraid of animals and animals weren't afraid of people because they were nice to each other. Everything was exceedingly good and paradise reigned. And one of the reasons I believe Satan fell shortly after creation is when Genesis 2 describes for us in more detail what happened the sixth day and we finally get to like after God rested, the first thing that said in Genesis chapter three, verse one is now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden right 
immediately the first thing mentioned after it is very good. And when God said it is very good, that was after the sixth day. So it was after Genesis 2. As soon as he says it's very good, the very next thing is there's evil present in the world. And so right off the bat, I think Satan rebelled and deceived Eve. Uh, there's another neat thing is, is that verse 31 refutes what is called the gap theory and or the day age theory. Remember, we talked about this. If you were here earlier, we talked about how some people tried to say, OK, we know the world is millions and billions of years old. and We got to stick it in the Bible, which says there were six days when God made everything. So how are we going to do that? So some have created a gap, a grand canyon of geological time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. They just say in the middle of Genesis 1-2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Let evolution take place. And then God, stick you stick millions and billions and death and dying and dinosaurs and all that stuff in that huge canyon of geological time. And then in chapter 2, after all that happened, God then continued to create and made Adam and Eve. And that's why we see what we do in the world. Others have said, no, 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 no. Uh, There is uh, every day there is not a day. It's not a literal day. And we went into great detail talking about that's the only thing it could be uh, for various reasons. The numerical value, the literal meaning of the text, the way other people use it in different places. The Bible, every Hebrew lexicon says it's a day. It's just the way it is. It's a literal 24-hour period, morning and evening, the first morning and evening, the second. You know, it just goes through. It's very clear. But some have said, no, those aren't little days. Really. God kind of started a geological time period and just let evolution take place. And then he kind of started another thing and let evolutions. That's why, and that's how we can stick all that in. Henry Morris notes concerning verse 31, this verse is sufficient itself to refute any theory which tries to accommodate the geological ages concept in the Genesis record of creation. Everything in the universe, the next verse specifically includes all the hosts of heaven in its scope, was still at this time exceedingly good in God's own omniscient judgment. There could have been nothing that was not good in all creation. No struggle for existence, no disease, no population, uh, no pollution, no physical calamities, earthquakes, floods, things like that. No imbalanced or lack of harmony or disorder, nor sin, and above all, no death. Even Satan was still good at this point. His rebellion and fall must have come later, end quote. So, you can't have millions and billions of years of death and dying and survival to spit fittest and creatures devouring each other and disease and mutation and all that junk and then say it was exceedingly good. No way. And then verse 31 says at the very end, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And that was the end of the creation week. God made everything there was to be made. And Lord willing, next time we'll come back and see what God did after that. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful that we could look at your word and see that you created everything in six days. That you are a God who loves us. And you've displayed your glory to us by making it possible for us to reproduce, to have lots of babies children that are a blessing, children that bear your image, children that can grow up to worship you and love you. Father, we're thankful for that. We're also thankful for the huge variety of foods we have to eat every day, especially in this country. Foods of every single kind and spices and 
When we eat lunch today, may we think about all the things we're eating and the variety of things we're eating and how we could just be eating something very boring like lemons every day. Help us to be grateful for our food and the variety of food and the taste of food and for those who have worked hard to prepare food and to make fun combinations of food to eat. Help us to be thankful for that. Help us to thank you and praise you and give you glory. And Father, we are thankful that your word affirms to us that when you finished creating, it was very good. There was nothing bad. It was all good. For you are good and you only do what is good. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.